don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I have got one by Hugo Nguyen today, um, and I've done a number of his in the past, um, and uh, I have been looking for a re-up. There's been a number of, there's been so much happening in Ethereum lately, and there's been, uh, recently I've been seeing a bunch of stuff on Twitter. I read a, a piece on, was it the Block Crypto? Um Man, I've got to stop starting conversations about stuff that I didn't collect my notes on. Uh, <laughs> the uh, it was uh, about one of the uh, organizations that were running a full node essentially for Ethereum, uh, which they found out was not actually a full node. It was not a fully archival node. That there is a quote unquote something called a full node setup that does, still does not keep the entire history of Ethereum. And they're essentially month to two month long struggle in trying to sync with the Ethereum blockchain. And uh, it appears throughout the entire process that they were only ever connected to one peer. Um, and this was all during the Constantinople uh, hard fork. The, uh, and the many different uh, you know, transitions, changes that they're trying to do in Ethereum right now. And uh, which did actually go through this article, though, the one that I'm I'm reading by Hugo uh, is uh, is titled Why Ethereum Architecture is Flawed. And it was actually came out before the Constantinople hard fork. So the the hard fork actually got pushed back. Um, It was scheduled uh, uh, very shortly after this article was released. And you'll notice the language in the thing talks about the upcoming Constantinople hard fork. Um, And it actually got delayed and then pushed back but uh it did eventually go through um but obviously this article was before all of that so we don't have that yet um but without further ado let's go ahead and just jump in again this is hugo huin's uh article published on january 16th of this year so just after the beginning of the year and it is titled why ethereum architecture is flawed In its three-plus years of existence, Ethereum has had no shortage of controversies, from the DAO hack to the long-anticipated transition to proof-of-stake to the Constantinople upgrade that reduces mining reward and changes the inflation schedule on the fly, not that Ethereum had a clear one to begin with. Ethereum's culture seems to be diabolically opposed to Bitcoins. Everything that Bitcoin shuns, Ethereum loves to embrace. If we were to ignore all the noise and dig under the hood, one would find that Ethereum's number one problem is not a problem of product market fit, but one of engineering soundness. Ethereum architecture is based on a flawed and unscalable idea. It assumes that, quote, smart contracts need computations to be replicated on thousands and thousands of machines. The rest of this article explains why. It was originally a tweet storm link provided, now converted to a blog format. Bitcoin is no magic. 
it sacrifices all manner of efficiencies, which goes against our intuition and, quote, best practices, in order to give us something special. Bitcoin is specifically inefficient in two dimensions. One, it mandates that rate of blocks produced must be slow. And two, it uses broadcast communication. To highlight how counterintuitive this is, how often do you purposefully make a job slower, even if you figured out a way to make it faster, and two, tell everyone you know about every single thing that you did every minute of the day? To do this in a network setting is even more insane. Not only you are slow, everyone else must be slow. Not only you scream at everybody, everybody screams at everybody else. Furthermore, this network has hundreds of thousands of members. If you have a giant insane asylum in mind, you have the right mental image. Doing things the Bitcoin's way is literally insane in most contexts. It turns out, being maximally inefficient has its advantages. By intentionally forcing things to be slow, Bitcoin makes it costly to cheat. By using broadcast communication, it minimizes the need to trust individual members or maximize fault tolerance in computer science terms. By doing both slow blocks and broadcast communication, Bitcoin solves the Byzantine General's problem, a huge breakthrough in computer science. But doing things Bitcoin's way comes at a heavy cost. It walks a thin line between brilliance and uselessness. Blockchain systems work well as long as the data flowing through them grow at a manageable rate. A data growth rate of anything but linear is unsustainable and a certain death sentence. Nonlinear data growth will quickly kill the individual nodes one by one and inevitably revert the system back to a less trust-minimized model. As blockchain systems are already maximally inefficient, there is little to fall back on if the data grows too quickly. Blockchain systems as they are tread on very thin ice. So when it comes to blockchain data, you need to be ruthlessly efficient. This is to compensate for being maximally inefficient in the areas mentioned above. This is precisely why Ethereum's architecture of rich statefulness is such a bad idea. Ethereum states are needed purely for computation purposes, but they grow at an unmanageable rate. Ethereum's design decisions are even more questionable when the reasons for embracing rich states at the core layer are vague and dubious. To simulate Turing completeness? There can be no real Turing completeness on the blockchains, as all programs must somehow be halted. So, quote, Turing complete is a total gimmick, Vitalik himself admitted to this. To make programmable smart contracts easier to write? Ease of use is the least of your worries when it comes to blockchain engineering. Backward priorities. Remember, with blockchains, you're already treading thin ice without adding rich states. So why? To support computations otherwise not possible with Bitcoin-style scripting alone? Not really. Any computations that can be done with Ethereum smart contracts can be done on Bitcoin just at a higher layer. And this is the crux of the problem. Ethereum is solving problems at the wrong layer and by doing so, needlessly bloating its core design. 
Kicking the can down the road and hope difficult problems resolve themselves is not a solution either. Sharding is not the solution, as sharding implies scaling down the level of broadcast communication, which is a feature in the context of blockchains, not a bug. Pinning all hope on sharding as the magical cure-all typifies Ethereum's attitude toward engineering, opium. Ethereum's problems are even more serious if you consider that Bitcoin, despite it being extremely conservative towards the type of data and growth of data it handles, still has a very real chance of failure. In my honest opinion, Bitcoin is still very much an experiment. If you've read my recent article on Bitcoin's incentive scheme, you'll notice that I've left a few questions open-ended which I still don't know the answers to. I'm optimistic on Bitcoin, but cautiously optimistic. To recap, Bitcoin is already stretching things to the limits to get something useful. Despite this, its success is not guaranteed. Ethereum stretches things out much further without having good justifications. Ethereum's architecture is flawed from the get-go for this reason. A few more words on the engineering side of things. The story of Ethereum is actually not uncommon. We've seen this movie before. RISC versus CISC in the 70s and Linux versus Windows in the 90s. In these episodes, we've learned that hardware and software work best when they are built as modular, simple layers, exemplified by RISC and Linux. Another example is TCPIP. The reason is that these systems tend to be more flexible, more elegant, and can adapt easier to changing environments or use cases. This insight is immortalized in the Unix design philosophy. Quote, Flexibility Simplicity and freedom are the foremost considerations. End quote. The Unix design philosophy also gets a vote of confidence from nature. Ant colonies exhibit emergent intelligence, even though individually the ants are dumb and highly specialized. Similarly, our brain is composed of simple neurons that individually perform simple tasks. Ethereum's kitchen sink approach at the core layer bears resemblance to the idea of a complex instruction set, or the idea of building software out of big, complex components instead of smaller and more specialized ones. Complexity for complexity's sake, not through emergence. In summary, Ethereum has questionable design decisions without strong justifications for them. We've also seen similar engineering mistakes to Ethereum before. My guess is that Ethereum will eventually be another lesson of what not to do's in the history book. All right, so let's hit our sponsor real quick. Uh, and then I want to go through, he's got a couple of notes here at the end of the piece um, and a uh, link to uh, an explanation by Gregory Maxwell. And we will dive into all of that in just a minute. Notes. I use, quote, blockchain systems to refer to Bitcoin-like blockchains that are based on proof-of-work. Additional reading, Gregory Maxwell explained verification, not computation, here. Below is a snippet. I'm actually going to read the whole thing. Um, it starts with uh, Tocinibur, a user. This is on the bitcointalk.org forums. Um, so if you want to go check this out, you can go straight to the link from the uh, article, and I will link to that in the show notes, obviously. Um, but uh, I'm going to start with 
to Cinnabur, whoever whoever this user is, and then follow it with Gregory Maxwell's response. Um, and this is all about Turing completeness and state for smart contracts. And this was a conversation in uh, on April 20th of 2016. So this was a long time ago, and uh, but it's still perfectly relevant today because of how it applies and the kind of the path that Ethereum has taken to get where it is and what I think is in a I think is in a troubling state currently. But uh, let's go ahead and start with Tisenabers, um, which I have no idea if that's how it's pronounced. It just is, looks like a bunch of random vowels and consonants to me. Uh, but uh, uh, we will go ahead and start with their comment. And that goes, there will be no public blockchain with Turing complete scripts ever, because that would mean absolutely any algorithm would be accepted in a script, including non-terminating ones. A smart contract with an infinite loop would be a very bad thing. But Ethereum is Turing complete, isn't it? No, it is not. It cannot be. It would be killed by DOS in no time. The language may be Turing complete in theory, but since the system must guarantee that all scripts terminate in finite time, I think they do it by requiring that each instruction has a cost. It is not Turing complete in practice. They could have used a total language in the first place, where you have a guarantee that every program terminates. I know this isn't really an answer to the OP question, but I wanted to point it out. And then Greg Maxwell uh, responds and expands in this really great post, uh, again posted on the same day. On the pedantic points, I echo what Tessenaber just said, and I could not say it better. Also see hashtag Bitcoin wizards past logs for commentary about total languages. I also consider that a major useful point for languages for this kind of system. People looking for Turing complete smart contracts inside a public cryptocurrency network are deeply and fundamentally confused about what task is actually being performed by these systems. It's akin to asking for Turing-complete floor wax. What does that mean? I, I don't even. Smart contracts in a public ledger system are a predicate. Bitcoin's creator understood this. They took input about the transaction and perhaps the chain, and they accept or reject the update to the system. The network of thousands of nodes all around the world doesn't give a darn about the particulars of the computation. They care only that it was accepted. The transaction is free to provide arbitrary side information to help it make its decision. Deciding if an arbitrarily complex condition was met doesn't require a Turing-complete language or whatnot. The verification of A is in P, not in P. In Bitcoin script, we do use straight-up, quote, computation to answer these questions because that is the simplest thing to do and for trivial rule sets, acceptably efficient. But when we think about complex rule, having thousands and thousands of computers all around the world replicate the exact same computation becomes obviously ludicrous. It just doesn't scale. Fortunately, we are not limited to the non-scalability and non-privacy of making the public network repeat computation just to verify it. All we have to do is recognize that computation wasn't what we were doing from the very, very beginning. Verification was. This immediately gives a number of radical improvements. So here he's, uh, this goes through a number of different examples in quotes, um, just to kind of make it obvious what I'm reading here. 
um, is there's a quote of the problem basically that they're having to deal with, and then essentially the solution that we have on uh, Bitcoin, um, or that you can do in Bitcoin script. So the first is uh, quote. The program is big, and I do not want to have to put it in the blockchain in advance. So what do you use? P2SH. The hash of the program goes into the public key. The program itself ends up just being side information. Scenario two. The program is big, but we're only going to normally use one nth of it. The branch is related to everything going right. End quote. What do you use? Mast. The program is decomposed into a tree of ORs, and the tree is merkelized. Only the taken OR branch ever need to be made public. Most of the program is never published, which saves capacity and improves confidentiality. Scenario. The program is big, and there are a fixed number of parties to the contract. They will likely cooperate so long as the threat of the program execution exists. End quote. What do you use? Coin swap transformation. The entire contract stays outside of the blockchain entirely so long as the parties cooperate. That's an example of something like Lightning Network. Scenario. The program is big and there are a fixed number of parties to the contract. And I don't care if everything just gets put back to the beginning if things, if things fail. And this is ZKCP or uh, run arbitrary programs which never hit the blockchain and are not limited by its expressive power, so long as it supports hash-locked tra transactions and refunds. Scenario. The program is kind of big, and we don't mind economic, in economic incentives for enforcement in the non-cooperative case. So, challenge response ver verification. Someone says, I assert this contract accepts, and then puts up a bond. If someone disagrees, they show up and put up a bond that sa to say it doesn't. Now, the first party has to prove it, for example, by putting the contract on the chain, or they lose their bond to the second party. If they're successful, they get the bond from the second party to pay the cost of revealing the contract. Scenario. The program is too big for the chain, but I don't want to depend on economic incentives and I want my contract to be private. Solution ZKP smart contracts. PCP theorem, uh, that's the computational complexity theorem, proves that a program can be proved probabilistically with no more data than log the size of its transcripts. SNARKs use strong cryptographic assumptions to get non-interactive proofs for arbitrary programs which are constant size, a few hundred bytes. Slowness of the prover, and in the case of SNARKs, trusted setup of the public key, though for fixed sets of participants this can be avoided, limit the usefulness today, but the tech is maturing. All of these radical improvements in scalability, privacy, and flexibility show up when you realize that Turing Complete is the wrong tool. That what our systems do is verification not computation. This cognitive error confers no advantage outside of marketing to people with a fuzzy idea of what smart contracts might be good for in the first place. More powerful smart contracting in the world of Bitcoin will absolutely be a thing, I do not doubt. But the marketing blather around Ethereum isn't power, it's a boat anchor, a vector for consensus inconsistency and decentralization-destroying resource exhaustion 
and incentives mismatches. Fortunately, the cognitive framework that I have described here is well understood in the community of Bitcoin experts. So some of that probably went over your head, but I figured for a number of people that would probably be really good to go over entirely. But the, the gist of it is just the, and what Hugo was trying to point out, um, uh, which he grabbed basically the last two paragraphs of this, is that what these systems do is verification, not computation. Um, it's, this is about getting as little information, the power of the blockchain is, is in getting as little information as possible that provides unparalleled, uncontestable verification. And the harder it is to uh, edit or make any changes to that blockchain, um, the more powerful that verification is at a faster point. Um, so it doesn't really matter if you know your blockchain only produces a block every 10 minutes, it's about how much that 10 minutes is getting you in security from editing, which some of these other uh, blockchains that boast is like, oh, we got, a, we got a confirmation every 30 seconds. Well, that's meaningless if it takes you know 30 days to get the same level of security in proof of work that Bitcoin does in a single block. Like who cares how many confirmations you have if somebody can spend, you know, $20,000 and revoke half a day's worth of blocks, which some of these blockchains can do, that's a, or, or you can do on some of these blockchains. This is a very real thing. Um, I think uh, somebody estimated one of the uh, hard forks that happens, or excuse me, not hard forks, but like uh, reorgs, uh, double spin attacks on, oh man, I can't remember which one it was. I'm so bad at this. Um, uh, it was one of, uh, it wasn't, I think it was a fork of Zcash, but I can't remember which one it was. Um, but regardless, it was something like, like somebody spent like $9,000 or something like that. It was, it was a stupidly low amount of money when I, when I started doing a little bit of research on it. Um, and this is a real, th this is, this is something that happens to a lot of these blockchains. This was, I read something not too long ago that the 51% attacks were actually becoming very common. Um, and there was a period there, it was like every week, it was like, oh, somebody got hit with another one. Somebody got hit with another one. And uh, I'm not even 100% sure what came of it because I haven't heard of it, heard of anything in a while. And it half makes me wonder if, um, you know, a lot of exchanges or something started accepting, uh, like, I know a lot of the very, very weak altcoins have been kicked from a lot of the exchanges and markets that used to be just rushing to accept as many as possible. Um, I think someone proposed at some point that the, the number of confirmations per like whatever cryptocurrency is being accepted should be proportional to the proof of work of that system and the cost of, uh, making a modification to the blockchain. Um, and I don't know what, uh, I think that's a brilliant system and I think any exchange that doesn't do it is opening themselves up to a serious, serious risk. Um, because if you think about it, if somebody um, deposits a million dollars in some nonsense altcoin that only costs $20,000 to do a 51% attack for, you know, six hours, you better have like six days worth of confirmation. Like whatever proportional like uh, confirmation is necessary to achieve the security of the deposit um, at least half of it 
um, should be done. So, you know, if somebody deposits like $20 of an altcoin, well, you don't have to worry about it. But if somebody deposits a million dollars, um, then you need to make sure that somebody can't spend half a million dollars and reorg that chain all the way back to their deposit. Um, so it's a... I went off on a little bit of a tangent here, but the, the point is, is that everything about the system is designed to secure and ensure with as little resource cost as possible the verification of as much data and ownership as possible. And to do that, you put, you, you put as little data as possible on chain. You put hashes. You, you aggregate uh, signatures so that you don't have to see the individual pieces of it but you know that the blockchain is securing each signature in that tree. Um, the example, um, just to kind of go back to further explain some of the things that were probably a little bit confusing, uh, particularly in audio, if you're not looking at this, was how um, the program, we have a really big program, but we're only going to use one nth of it. We're only, only going to use a fraction of it, which is the branches of that program related to... Uh, everything in that program having gone right. So we've executed the program and we could have executed it like 20 different ways, but only one path obviously concluded the, the program's execution. So you use something like MAST, you, you, which, is, which enables, enables you to decompose the entire thing into a tree, uh, a Merkleized tree, where all you ever have to do is show the branch that... Um, that the program executed executed to. So, like, let's say there's like 50 branches on this huge program broken down into a mast, uh, a tree. Um, and when it executes, you know, one person gets the payout to you know whatever the agreement or um con- financial contracts, etc. It was. That's the only path you need to see. You don't need to know the other 49 participants, and you obviously don't need any of that other data. You want to be able to streamline. They are the, the, that one winner of the contract or program, the, the result of that program, is the only one that the public should be worried about because they are the ones own, who own the, the new bits on the blockchain. Um, and so you, you just, you don't clog it up. Like you, if, if this is about verification... And this is about independent ownership and proving consensus rules that went into this. Anything that you have that does not satisfy one of those goals is a complete waste of resources. Um, and trying to get the network to redo these computations over and over again makes no sense when you can do the computation off-chain and hash everything that went into the computation and have that be required to prove the ownership. Um, you do the exact same thing without distributing that cost to thousands and thousands and thousands of nodes all the way across the world and repeating it over and over and over again for no good reason when only the parties uh, present to that transaction or to the program um, that uh, relevant to the program actually need to be there for any reason. Um, or actually need to do the computation, excuse me. All you need is the proof. Um, so uh, I thought this was just a really good, I, I read his tweet storm and then saw that he, uh, I, had, I had it saved in my whole list. 
um, because his and uh, Tur Demeester's uh, Tur Demeester has a bunch of uh, ha- have really good tweet storm relevant to this um, that reference this exact same thing from Gregory Maxwell. And I thought this whole thing was just a really good discussion and kind of shine or shown uh, some new light on the whole. Rather than talking about where Ethereum is, how many nodes they have, or whether or not they're centralized or decentralized, like the core, like the absolute fundamentals, what is the blockchain doing? And is Ethereum in any way, or are their core concepts even designed around what makes sense to, uh, to do with the blockchain? And I think that this is basically what I agree with. I think they're right. I think it makes no sense to try to push greater amounts of work and computation onto the stewards of the network because the value of the triple entry accounting is that you can verify ownership and you can know that you do not have to, you're not trusting someone else's claim that they own this or that um, this contract executed this way, you can prove on the blockchain and even measure exactly how much security it has at you know, current visible you know, rates of uh, proof of work and electricity costs. You can calculate real numbers, like actual numbers for security of a financial transaction. It's pretty nuts to think about that it's that open, that it's that, it's that visible with... Um, uh, something that's been so abstract um, up until Bitcoin existed. Um, and so I think that's it's just an utterly fascinating part of this whole thing. And I think this was a great breakdown of the errors of thinking that went into building the Ethereum blockchain and really kind of hitting the point home that there isn't, there isn't any fixing something that's broken at the foundation. Um, so that will close us out here uh, I don't want to go any further. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Again, this was Hugo Huynh on, uh, this was his Medium post, by the way. I don't even think I said that is on his Medium page. And he has tons of stuff on his Medium page. Actually, probably I'm going to hit another one pretty soon from him. Uh, uh, I think he mentioned it in this episode, or in this uh, post, if I'm not mistaken, about um, the rational uh, incentives of a Bitcoin system. Because that's another really fun one that I enjoyed. I read it a while back. And I think it's a good one that we may hit on the show soon. So don't forget to check out Hugo Huynh. I'll post, um, I'll get his tag, uh, Hugo Hanoi, uh, H-U-G-O-H-A-N-O-I on Twitter. I will just link to that in my Twitter post as well as in the show notes and then to his Medium article. Drop some applause on this article if you enjoyed this one uh, to make sure you reward him for keeping these things coming because he, he really does have a lot of great pieces out there. And uh, also follow him on Twitter if you are not because, uh, as I said, he always drops some pretty amazing stuff. And every once in a while, it's just an awesome tweet storm. And hopefully, if we're lucky like this one, he turns it into a blog post to make it easy to read on the show. All right, guys, uh, do not forget to check out um, cryptoeconomy.life. I've got a lot of stuff I'm... I'm currently redesigning the website. Right now, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of... Um, uh, I'm redesigning the homepage. Let me let me say it that way. I'm not redoing everything again. Uh, but right now, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of episodes kind of in chronological order. 
And I've said this before, I think a lot of the stuff is getting lost up here. I mean, we've got a number of different works from Hugo already, and it's like, you know, like, like you might just want to go see what Hugo has done and then listen to a couple of his articles. Um, and really, it's not set up right now to make that fluid. Um, so I'm trying my best, and I'm probably going to uh, drop uh, some changes soon. Uh, and I would like your input on what I'm working on uh, when I do finally get it out. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to see the recent episodes and uh, some of the long reads and some of the uh, really the Bitcoin Survivors book list is a really, really great one to do digging on your own. Um, there are so many good books up there. I love all of those books. The only one that I'm digging into right now that I have not finished yet is... Um, well, I, I take that back. I haven't even started it yet. I just got it in the mail. It took me like two months, and we had to cancel and reorder and cancel and reorder. I don't know what the hell was going on. Book's not easy to find, but The Sovereign Individual is the only one I haven't read on that whole list now, and there's so much gold up there. There's so many awesome uh, books up there, and that's why I made it. So if you want to do some digging on your own, that is the place to go. You can find all that on cryptoeconomy.life, and of course, follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy. That is me, Guy Swan. And until next time, do not forget to take it easy.